maybe he's never going to say, I am proud of you. It's like five words. It's free. It would help me a lot if I heard it. Welcome to Model Minority Moms, where we talk about the meaning of success in career, family, and life. We are Jeanette Park, Kate Wong, and Susan Liu, Harvard classmates and Asian American working moms who get real about the pressures of fitting in while standing out. So we're back with Model Minority Moms talking about the influence of our parents in our career decisions. And you've heard a little bit from Jeanette and Kate, and it's my turn. What I love about our podcast being called Model Minority Moms is like so often what we're bumped up against is there's this like single dimensional experience that model minorities have. But when each of us talk, you can see how different it is with our parents' upbringings. And I mean, like Kate was totally obsessed with Chinese literature and Jeanette's parents, they were pretty lackadaisical about everything she did. And then that led her to just putting a lot more pressure and feeling really responsible. And my story about me and my dad is totally different. I would characterize my dad as a tiger dad in a foreign world. He and my mother didn't finish eighth grade in a very rural village in Vietnam in the Mekong Delta, came to America. You know, we were refugees here, very poor and just trying to make it in America. So what they knew was having great grades, perfect grades would get you more opportunities and you should go to college because no one in our entire family has ever gone to college. And so I always knew growing up I would go to college. But the thing is, is what I really resented of what my mom did. And, and after she passed away when I was 11, my dad took over with parenting and telling me what to do with my life is that, yes, it was all about the doctor path or the lawyer path. But what they failed to do was to wrap that narrative around my values. So instead, my dad would be like, hey, my friend's kids are doctors. You should be a doctor, too. And then, and then it was like dot, dot, dot. But if you're too stupid, you can't do it. Or if you don't try hard enough, then that's why you're going to fail at it. Like you need to work harder to become that when I'm like 12, 13, I'm just positioned next to these other kids as if like, am I going to be as good as them or better? And, and if I'm not, it's just like, I suck. I'm dumb. I'm inferior. Instead of my dad realizing like, oh, at 12 years old, I'm reading The Economist and reading about poverty and wondering what's going on with the rest of the world. I wish so bad that he could have been like, oh, if you get a medical degree, then you can help the world's poor by being a doctor. Instead of just like being a doctor means you're going to make a lot of money, you know, or like if you become a lawyer, then you can work on human rights issues and that can further the needle on things that you care about. But of course, because he only finished eighth grade, he had no ability to have that conversation, nor did he understand what my values were and to be like, oh, I've read this parenting book and I will put everything through that lens, even though I still want her to be the doctor, be the lawyer. Like it just never came out that way. Instead, it was just like, are you going to be enough and prove it to me that you're enough? Do you think that turned you off to 100 percent considering being a doctor and lawyer, right? Ironically. Well, I mean, I did. There was a part of me that wanted to be a lawyer for my own reasons. But the more I felt that pressure, the more I was like when, when I got to Harvard, so many Asian kids were pre-med, so many white kids were pre-med or wanting to eventually go to law school that I was just like, oh, it's like the thing to do. It just didn't feel sincere to me. I didn't even look into pre-med at all. I was kind of on the lawyer track for a little bit, but the more I did all these informationals with people who are lawyers and what you do on the day-to-day, -day, I was like, that's just not me. That doesn't speak to me. It just sounds really, really boring to just read a whole bunch of documents all the time. Susan, I also love to hear, because clearly you have this kind of performance streak, and it seems like that's been a part of your life in one form or another for a while. And so I imagine that came out, you know, in your family and how you interact with them. And so that's a big part of your career now. And so I want to hear how that played out with your parents and just your family in general how they saw it and yeah, how you feel like their interactions influenced how you operate in that space today. I'm just laughing for our listeners because Susan's eyes just got like super wide and she kind of had this look on her face. How do I explain that I've tried to hide it from my family for so long and how awkward that was? Like, so in middle school and high school, I was on the PA every single day for student government. Like I was talking about your birthdays and what the sports scores were like, 
I did that in seventh and eighth grade. I already was doing workshops on diversity training and like drug and alcohol abuse. Like <laughs> I, in, in high school, I mean, looking back on it, it's like fucking clear as day, right? In high school, I was leading rallies and I was dressing up as a mascot for like phonathon fundraisers and mm. dancing on the stage on TV. So began your lifelong love affair with bodysuits and like, you know, like, well, uh, costumes. I love costumes. Yeah. I love costumes. And not in the furry kind of way. And then also I was selling chocolate with my sister in high school and we had our shop set up in front of my dad's nail salon and, and I was a front woman. I was selling the product. I was hand selling everything all the time. And I remember there was this one time that I had invited my siblings because I was doing this in high school, it was just like National Day of Service. And I was doing a safety talk about like, don't pick up needles on the ground or, you know, like make sure we get the cigarette butts. But I was like so performative about it. And it was cracking everybody up because it was like a safety talk. Right. But it was like this like thing that I was doing and the energy swirling. And I'm just like, so having such a great time. And then I catch in the corner of my eye, my brother standing in like the mm. gym, this high school gym or something. And all of a sudden, like I like freeze up and I'm like, oh my God, like I felt so naked. I felt like I was doing something really bad. So because not like that at home? I mean, I think at home there were always like, gosh, you're so emotional and so sensitive. Like I'm very expressive, you know? And then that was shut down. Like my brother, we would walk through the mall and he would be like, what are the three C's? And I'm like, calm cool composure. And like I was doing that since eighth grade. They were trying to help me regulate my emotions when I was younger. And it was kind of this weird thing because instead of like, hey, regulate your emotions, it was like, don't express yourself or like you're too much. And so I always felt like what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I be like everybody else? And so it just always felt like I had to fix myself in front of them. Sorry, I just want to understand more concretely what that looked like. Were you kind of, as a kid, really hyperactive, really just energetic, or were you crying a lot? Or, I mean, when you say really sensitive, what does that mean? I mean, sure, I cried. Yeah, I would cry about stuff, like when I was frustrated or I didn't feel hurt or whatever. And it was always just like, go to the bathroom and wash your face. Like, there was no discussion about anything. I would say I, I definitely was an intense kid. Yeah. Like when I, I begged and begged my parents to be in Girl Scouts, to be join the soccer team. And in Girl Scouts, I got like a few badges every week from like the troop meetings or whatever. And the troop leader had to pull me aside and be like, you're making the other girls feel bad because you're earning oh. so many badges. And I was just like, maybe they should earn more badges. Like, I think whenever I got an opportunity to do something, I like gave so much of myself and I was so like I was the top. Girl Scout cookie seller. Right when we got those forms, I just went into all the other girls' territories and I just knocked on doors until it got really late at night, like by myself when I was nine. I just wanted so much out of life. And I think that might have been really intense for my family. Do you think things changed after your mom passed? Because I remember you saying in the past that your older siblings took on the role of kind of parenting you, right? Or disciplining you. I mean, they did that even before because your parents were busy at the nail salon. But do you feel like somehow they kind of cracked down on you even more after your mom passed or not? It was like I unleashed the beast. My two brothers were in college. My sister's three years older than me. But she was kind of in her own world doing her own thing, middle school, high school. And so for me, it's like before my mom used to say no, like I really wanted to play the trombone so I could sit next to this really cute kid named Sean and I could be next to him in a band and I could be closer to him. You know, I didn't care about the trombone. All I did was care about Sean. And that was a no. I wasn't allowed to do that. I had to beg and fight really hard for soccer. And then my mom showed up to one of the soccer games and I froze. I couldn't perform and I just messed up the whole time and it was terrible. What I'm trying to say here is, is like I was always fighting for things and never really either. There was so much resistance to let, let me do it because we didn't have that much money or that was a narrative that was presented to me. And when she died and my dad now is a widow and has four kids, two in college, two in middle school, high school, and he's trying to like manage the nail salon and make sure it doesn't fall apart right? Because it was a thing that my mom led. He kind of became a little bit more hands off. Or when I was like, hey, I want to go to Nicaragua in ninth grade for a few weeks to do community service. He was like, no. And I was like, yes. And I found a scholarship to do it. And I just kept fighting. Like everything about me and my dad has always been a fight, which is unfortunate. You know, and I remember I was like, I really want to do community service. I really want to do student government. And the reason why I say he's a tiger dad in a foreign world is because he thought that was like terrible. He thought that I was being so disobedient 
he just didn't understand that that actually is valued by colleges. And you had mentioned in the past, so I just wanted to clarify that. It's not that he only found it like disrespectful to him because you weren't following his wishes, but he actually thought that that was not going to be helpful to you. Like, yeah, a material way. Completely distracting from school. I mean, he did not understand what a 4.86 GPA was. He did not understand that I was already crushing it at school. He just was like, why don't you listen to me? And this was really frustrating for me because at school, I used to clean house during those awards ceremony. I'd get like half the awards. <laughs> and I would get citizenship awards, student of the year, whatever, like middle school, high school. I would like crush it. I got like two city for my entire city, city of Santa Rosa. I had got two of the merit awards for the town before I was a senior, like my dad didn't get it. And most of the time he couldn't show up to the award ceremonies anyways, because he was working. And so there was this fundamental disconnect that he didn't understand, like I was the model student and I would have friends, parents coming up to me be like, you're Susan? Oh, blah, blah, blah. It was so sad because the very approval I needed and wanted, I didn't get. I got it from all these other people and it did not matter. Like any additional certificate or trophy just did not matter. But I kept clawing for it as if I could ever get it from my dad. It's always been this very strange thing where I'm like, I'm going to still do what I want, even though I know he's not approving at all. And, and even getting into Harvard, he didn't understand the system. And he didn't know what Harvard was, but he kind of started out figuring out what Stanford was. And he was really disappointed I didn't get at Stanford. And he was like, we'll figure out how to get in after oh, I got didn't know. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like he is in the minority there, like an Asian parent not knowing about Harvard. I mean, we grew up in a public yeah, yeah, school no, system yeah, and we, yeah. we were all gunning for UC Berkeley. My brother's gunning UC Berkeley. I was expected to go. I always wanted, that was my, okay, I'm going to go. I, I used to wear UC Berkeley sweaters. So that's what we knew. His other touch point for understanding what was going on was his nail salon customers. Yeah. So he would maybe probably ask them questions. But the thing is, our communication was totally broken because he felt like betrayed by me. And he's never said that word, but he didn't understand why I didn't listen to him. But at the same time, it's like I in high school, I got an award that flew me and him to Walt Disney World. And I got to meet Christopher Reeves, like a Disney Millennium Scholar or something. And then like every quarter I would fly to L.A. Yeah. In high school, like he didn't know anything I was doing. So I have two questions for you, Susan. Do you feel at some level he kind of had a sense, but then there were some issues with the fact that maybe you knew more than he did about this world? I mean, it's kind of a difficult thing to say, right? Because I feel like sometimes I run into these feeling with my parents. There's a certain amount of shame as a parent actually realizing that your young kid, who's not even an adult yet, are actually able to better navigate the system than you. And so that there's a certain amount of resistance, I think, sometimes to that. So I wonder if you feel like that was part of the dynamic at all. And then the second, I kind of wanted to probe a little bit about this freezing response. You're performing in front of like 100 people and then you see a member of your family and all of a sudden you freeze. And, you know, where does that come from? I want to understand. Yeah. I mean, okay, so the first question is like, I don't know my dad's psyche, like deep down what he was really thinking. You know, of course, all of us kids were helping read documents and helping translate sometimes. Maybe it is like taking away your masculinity when your youngest kid. I mean, I don't know. He's never said that. Oh, here's some context, Susan. If you can give us some context about your siblings because you have three and they're all older, right? How did they respond to his expectations? Did they fulfill them? I'd be curious to know. We are a fun group of people. <laughs> Me and my siblings. I mean... <laughs> Uh, I'll break it down. Okay, so the oldest one, King, he got into Berkeley, went to UC Davis because he wanted to be half an hour farther away from the house. He really wanted to be a botanist and he really loved plants. And my mom really wanted him to be a dentist. He spent time working at a greenhouse and stuff. And finally, after she died, he slowly moseyed his way to becoming a dentist and went to dental school. So he did fulfill the expectation, but it took a lot longer than anticipated. My second brother... Also got into Berkeley and was studying business, eventually went to pharmaceuticals and was doing pretty well for himself. So then my dad felt pretty happy about that. And then my sister, she went to UC Davis and she got a pretty sweet gig working at Accenture after college. So that's an IT management consulting firm. But her real passion was to really continue this chocolate business that we had started in high school. And she really wanted to go to pastry school. That's actually where she wanted to go after high school. My dad was like, kabosh that, like, no. And eventually she saved up money to go to pastry school in the evenings 
while she was still working at Accenture and then eventually transitioned to mm-hmm. doing chocolate full-time, which he kept saying, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Like we came from a very rural area in Vietnam where my family did sell cakes in the market, but that's like a sign of being like very low class, which is like just making food and living hand to mouth by selling food that he was like, we came all this way for you to, to do something lower class, even though he's very proud of my sister now, but it took years of her working at it and opening the store and he came to the opening and he was on that day, he was really proud. It's almost as if we had to prove it to him and already be successful for him to then approve of it. He He's not going to be like, follow your dreams, you know, because it's like, well, why would he ever say that? He wasn't allowed to, his only dream was to get out of Vietnam. He was never allowed to have his own personal dream. It was really like just financially make it whatever that looks like. As my 36-year-old self, it's very hard to fault him for any of that. I think at the time when I was 11 through 22, I was pretty angry and like, why don't you understand me? Why doesn't anyone listen to me? Why can't we have conversations about stuff? Like that was a lot of frustration because we had to fall in line with the expectation. But at the same time, each of my siblings, we weren't like my dad's friend's kids that immediately went to dental school or immediately went to medical school. You know, like we still had our own path that we went to go find ourselves. And you know what? To this day, like if you look at each of us, we all own our own businesses. I mean, my brother is a dentist, but he owns his own business. And so I I think this was kind of subconscious, but we saw our parents working so hard, owning their own business and being their own boss. And in the end, even though it would have been more cush to work for an employer in terms of financial security and mental security around that, like each of us then charted our own paths in the likeness of our parents. Yeah, so much to explore there. Jeanette, you're also talking about your reaction. Like your reaction, why you felt naked and so sensitive around your family. And I wonder if that's common among performers, like you have your parents or people that you know in the audience and then you just feel more naked or, you know, is that specific more to you? I mean, in my profession now, I'll do a lot of Q&As and a lot of Asian students, college students, adults will will talk about how much they want to be a part in the arts. They want to write their stories. They want to be performers. They want to do all these things. And it's not allowed. It's not encouraged. It's seen as too risky. Or why would you share your own story? There's nothing that's ever validated about it. And so a part of me was like, I was the entertainer also at our nail salon. Like (laughs) when we were behind schedule, it was my job to go up to different women, take off their nail polish and ask them about their day, be really interested in their dogs, whatever, you know, just so that they were having a good time so they wouldn't leave. And my sister didn't do that. That's not her personality. She did other things that were very helpful. It wasn't surprising to my family that this is my personality, but this goes against the grain of being a dutiful, like quaint Vietnamese daughter that is obedient. You know, like I am so expressive. I am kind of tomboyish. I'm all these things that is disappointing (laughs) to them. And it just never felt encouraged. You know, when we have family parties (laughs) and stuff, sometimes it was shut down or the interpretation was like, you just want attention. And that's really um, heartbreaking because then I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be what I'm naturally wanting to be. So the times that my siblings have come to my comedy shows, I mean, now since I was doing solo performance and doing the story actually ironically about our family, when they're in the audience now, I'm okay. I I mean, I'm very aware they're in the audience. But when it was the comedy stuff, I was pretty ashamed. I was nervous, but I also wanted to sell them a ticket. And it was very strange for me because I knew I felt alive on stage, but it was never validated in my family. And the whole like, you just want attention thing that really stuck with me because then I felt like, what's wrong with me? Like, do I just want attention? And I would just doubt myself. So a lot of my narrative is around fighting for what I wanted to do, which always made me feel like what's wrong with me. I feel like the alternative or like the more natural question is what's wrong with wanting attention? I mean, every child to some extent wants attention, but yeah, I I do see that at least in Korean culture and I think in a lot of Asian cultures, especially for women, right? I feel like it dovetails with this whole notion, like you should make yourself smaller to give other people more space. And part of that is not bringing attention to yourself. Yeah, I I have that similar, yeah, experience too, I think. And actually, I was both. So I could see my parents react to the different sides. You know, when I was the quiet person who sit in the corner reading a book at those like Chinese parties, it was very acceptable, right? Because I was a good example for all the kids. But 
I can be really loud. And I think I had a streak in me where I was like, I had this kind of exuberance, especially around people that I know. But I remember my parents would tell me if they thought I was being too loud or even sometimes peers. Like one time I remember this girl, she was like a frenemy, maybe more enemy of the frenemy. Anyway, our parents were friends. And then one time she was like, we're so loud, just like your dad, you know, and she's also Chinese. And so I think just all of these things that I, the signs that I got from her were like the you know, Chinese community, I didn't even like Susan, I didn't even think I gave myself the space to even think about being more expressive in any kind of context that was acceptable. I would just be hyper aware, I think up until I went to college of what was acceptable and not acceptable. So at least you kind of expressed yourself in a certain context, but like, I didn't even feel like I should, you know, I started having all these, don't be like this, don't be like this, don't be like this, because the environment kept giving me the feedback that this is not acceptable, right? Or even I remember in high school, we did like Romeo and Juliet reenactments and it was amazing. I loved it. I really loved acting. But the crazy thing is now that I'm listening to you, I'm like, dude, it didn't even cross my mind to tell my parents, hey, can I try out for a school play? Or I didn't even cross my mind to be like, maybe I should try out for a school play because I really loved it. And everybody loved it. Like the teacher loved it. All my classmates like, well, you were amazing. But that's the crazy thing, Susan, right? Isn't that sad? Like, at least you yeah. went for it. But like, for me, I didn't even give myself the option of like, oh, maybe I should go try out for the school play, you know? I didn't went for it. Like, I did it all in the construct of extracurriculars, which was, oh, I'm going to be a part of this volunteer organization. Anyone want to be a part of this, I don't know, workshop, you know, like workshop presenters, whatever. And no one raised their hand. So I was like, okay. And I just raised my hand. And the mentors there were just like, you're so great. Or you're so brave. Or like, keep going. Or you're awesome. And I was like, I am? Cool. But it wasn't like acting. Like it wasn't being on the stage stage, like in the drama sense. And I remember going to the middle school play. It was Fiddler on the Roof. And I was so jealous of all these kids that were singing and dancing on stage. Mm -hmm. And I would go to the high school productions and I felt so late. I felt I so, so late. late. Like they already went to uh -huh. camp, summer camp, or they already did it in middle school, or they have a coach that helps them, or they have an agent. And, and then coming to Harvard, learning about Screen Actors Guild and like learning that our classmates were part of SAG already. I was just like, oh, yeah. That would have been cool. I mean, I don't think I could have really taken out a drama because I was doing student government and community service. Like that was already, I think I was also president of the Asian club and we would buy egg rolls and sell them. Like I was just all over the map in high school. But when I got to college, I tried out for vagina monologues my freshman year and I got a part. I got to tell you, so amazing. Like I only had six lines and it was so amazing. I was a six-year-old girl and it's like, what does your vagina smell like? And my last line is snowflakes. And it was awesome. <laughs> but I had, you know, tried out for the, the improv troupe, totally botched it. But I still didn't think that that was for me, like that I deserved it or I should explore it. I had this whole narrative around, God, I only lost one parent. So my life isn't as bad as orphans. So I should dedicate my life to social justice and make life better for people who have suffered. Like that was my whole narrative since my mom died. And so I spent all of college, I was a social studies concentrator and really focused on public health and looking at HIV AIDS education programs. Like that's what I was really into for a number of years. I was in Phillips Brooks house doing a lot of community service there and it drove my dad crazy. And we would get on fights on the phone and eventually I had to draw the line and say, you know, when you say certain things in certain ways, if you do that, I'm going to have to hang up the phone. And that was like really big for me because I had never really said what's okay and not okay and, and how to talk to me. But I started getting really frustrated in college. I didn't have a lot of direction for my family, clearly of, I mean, he, he wanted me to be a lawyer, period. You are going to be a lawyer and then you can like have a boyfriend and then you can get married and have babies. Like that's my plan for you. In the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm still going to law school. I'm, I'm going to eventually study for the LSATs. But I was just so tired of fighting. So I just kind of like did my own thing in college, kept exploring accidentally was in a cult. And I continued just to follow my intuition for better or for worse. I didn't have this path like Jeanette where I was very hireable to be a McKinsey consultant and then still have so many more options available to you. It's like I just started going on this very spiritual deep path where I was like, I'm tired of approval. I'm tired of achieving. Like, what do I actually really want? And I started that in my early 20s, all of that, and then went to business school because Part of the, the pressure of going to business school was my dad really wanted me to get a master's degree. And I felt like I needed to get him off my back and that the only degree that would make sense was something that flexible. I, a I, very expensive way to get your dad off your back. I, I felt like I was like, I didn't really get financial literacy or loans and stuff yeah. because I was mostly scholarship student at, at Harvard. I think I graduated with maybe like $3,000 in loans or something. Like, wow. 
which was really great because it actually opened up my options. And that's why I could go to Vietnam and have an internship with, I think it was USAID working on sustainable cacao development because I thought it was a convergence of so much of my interests. But it has been hard because even now to this day, I don't talk about my profession with my dad because uh, we have rules about what we can talk about and what's okay and not okay. And he really does not approve of what I do because one is in the arts, which is like, I'm not maximizing my earning potential or not yet. And then the second one is like, you're talking about stuff that we still haven't talked about for two decades and you're talking about it very publicly. So WTF. Right. Mm, that's like so, a huge no-no in Asian. Like, oh, so big. Oh. I, I hope my parents never listen to this because I think they would be really pissed at me. You know what I mean? Even though I've kind of like tried to moderate some of the things I say, but like even this podcast would be like too much for my parents. Right. Yeah. So I'm still feeling like I'm hiding from my family in terms of what I do. I mean, two of my siblings have come to my shows and they are part of the post-show talkbacks. They're overall pretty supportive of what I'm doing, but the content is still a very difficult content, which is talking about my mom's death and how we didn't grieve and how that there's just so much shame around her death and and how we didn't deal with it. You know, like they clearly didn't want to deal with it. And me talking about it publicly is not helping. So it's controversial. So pretty much we pretend like I don't do it. My sister sometimes talks to me about it, which is cool. But like we just kind of pretend I don't do it. Mm. So it's kind of like going back to when they would show up and see me talking to large groups of people and then all of a sudden I would shrink again. It's because it's not validated. So it's kind of weird. It's like, I mean, I was in the LA Times twice when I was on tour and we didn't talk about it as a family. Like, I don't know. If in, in another circumstance, I would have just, without a doubt, just like dropped a link in to my family chat and like be like, fuck, I'm in the LA Times, you know? But it was like, we didn't. Like, it's like, I'm living a second life. And then when I go hang out with the family, it's like, oh, I'm present with the family. We hang out and we kick in and we eat. But so strange for something that's such a, my career, which is such a big part of my life. Hmm to not intersect with my family, even though my storytelling is about my family. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I think that makes sense, though, because if your siblings and your other family members have not processed or have no desire to process in the same way that you have, acknowledging you and your success um, and how much you've impacted other people would be forcing them to confront this giant, like, emotional elephant in the room that they've been spending the last few decades avoiding. And I'm not saying it's right, but I think, you know, the, it's a journey they have to go on. I don't know. Do you feel like they'll ever be ready? Maybe, maybe not. Or I think everyone grieves in their own way. I think all of them actually have, it's, look, me doing the work on my healing with mom and talking about mom, inevitably people shift whether they want to or not, right? And I have seen each of them and their relationship mom shift and grow and change. And I'm very happy for them. I wish they would let me in more. But the thing is like, you got to respect people's space for stuff. So I'm not going to fault them for it. It's just the book is going to be in probably every major bookstore in America next year. Mm -hmm. And we still haven't talked about it. So okay. it, that's just kind of like the, hmm, that's kind well, of, that's one part. But the other part is that even if they may not necessarily have coped in the same way as you, but I think I feel like I would be really devastated that I couldn't share an achievement with my parents. I have a very mini version of this, right? Which is like a few years ago, I wrote an article for a local newspaper here in Seattle. It's about Chinese American cultural differences. I sent it to my dad. It's like, like, oh, that's cool. He immediately was like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And I was like, well, never want to send you anything again. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe I don't know if that's the, what you fear, too, Susan, is like, even if you did something, I think parents, at least my or well, my dad, they're so conditioned to immediately jump into, well, this is wrong. They don't even think about, oh, this is cool that you did this. You know, I may not always agree with you on everything. And I think that's really hard. I don't know if that's how you feel like might happen or. God. OK, it's complicated. My father is a very sweet man. And when I last visited him in October, November of last year, he's hey, do you need some more pictures of the chocolate company when you guys get articles so you can give them to have them print it? I'm like, okay, sure. I, I was like, oh, he had some pictures of when we were kids or something selling chocolate. And he gives me this album and I open it, this photo album. That he had made that you've never seen. Never seen. And it was like every thank you card I've ever written him since high school, different pictures of me I've never seen. He put in some of the articles that I've sent him about the show and he put them in there that I had sent him. And I, when I would send them to me, we'd never talk about it on the phone. So I was kind of like, okay. Or apparently he'd be really mad at me and it'd be really tense. But then I saw that he saved them. Yeah. There is this acknowledgement that I got that I really appreciated. But at the same time, it's like, maybe he's never going to say, I am proud of you. It's like five words. It's free. It would help me a lot. 
I heard it. And all these other people, usually they're white, are like, your dad is proud of you. Or, and I hate it when they do it, your dead mother is so proud of you. I know that, you know, in my heart. And I'm like, ah, you guys can all say it, but it doesn't count yet. Like, I need to hear him say it, you know? And it's like, is he capable of ever saying it? Does he actually feel it? You know, and it's like the small child in me still wants it. Wants that so bad. But at the same time, I tried to do management consulting for a little bit. Didn't really enjoy it. And the money was better. And I gave him more money at the time, you know, and it's like filial piety people like I want to give him money every month. Like he sacrificed a lot in his life and had a very hard life for all of us kids to have more choice than him. And I give him less money now as an artist than a management consultant per month. And I feel pretty bad about it. I really hope I quote unquote make it so that I can give him a lot amount of money per month so that I can be the good daughter, but also not compromise my values and passions. But it's kind of hard. I'm kind of in this like still stuck place where I still feel like the odd one out. You know, I still feel like a black sheep in my family. And I so wish I could have just become a doctor. I so wish I could have had a very straight path and like pleased everyone. Like I wish that every fiber of my being wishes I could have done that. But I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I was pretty opinionated about something. And like when I wanted it, I want to get it, you know, even if everyone was going to be mad at me. And that's like blessing and a curse, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's been that way your whole life. I don't know if this is kind of a disrespectful way, I guess, of portraying it, but I have this image in my mind. And I think it's actually helped me a lot in terms of freeing me from more of the expectations that I feel like my parents hold over me and the pressure that I put on myself, I think, because of my relationship with them. I have this image of me as a young girl, but then my parents are also like toddlers, basically. Sorry, it's so disrespectful, right? Maybe to say that. And it's kind of like an extreme way to say that. But just even the example of your dad, right? Giving you this photo album with a compilation of things and an expression of him saying, I'm paying attention. I'm proud of you, even though he can't verbalize it. But then also when you share these things with him, he's sometimes getting really upset and yelling at you. But if my parents did that, I would say that's toddler-like behavior where on the outset, you are super upset and can't handle your emotions, right? And it's after the fact, you kind of settle down and then you process it. Ideally, an emotionally healthy, balanced person could say, hey, I'm feeling upset because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And then maybe come back to you later and say, you know what? I thought about it and actually I'm really proud of you. Like I'm still having trouble in these areas. But you know what I mean? Like that would be like a more kind of an adult response from somebody who is more like emotionally balanced. I feel like I face the same kind of thing with my parents, right? Where sometimes I would have a negative interaction with them and I just come away from them. Like, what was that? I don't know if it's healthy or not, but I do think that it helped me to be like, okay, that was actually not the response of a emotionally mature person, because I think it's freed me from this expectation that I have and this desire and longing that I have to find support and security in my parents as emotionally adult, mature people. And coming to this realization that actually they're not, and there's a grieving process there because yeah, like as a kid, you need it and not having that at such a formative age, it always just sticks with you even as an adult. But at least as an adult, you can start to repair yourself a little bit by just acknowledging that your parents are not capable. And and when you're a kid, you just assume that your parents are capable. So whatever they do is the right thing. And so I feel like that's a lot of this kind of pain and even this feeling of being gaslighted. You're being told or given these messages from your parents and there's this conflict because you assume whatever they say is right, but then you have your own reality. And it's not until you're an adult that you realize, oh, actually, my parents are totally wrong. Yeah, I still think they're right. (laughs) Like, I still think he is a demigod. Like, he's my parent. I hear you about changing expectations. Like, what are people capable of? Like, what can we fault for? It's just so hard in the moment to just like when I go go into family gatherings, my husband and I will consciously clarify what my expectations are or like if this happens then what are you going to do then? Like I have to prepare because I can get deeply hurt and triggered very quickly. And I I don't want to paint the imagery that I'm like yelling and screaming with my family all the time and it's a disaster. It's not that. I do feel hurt sometimes and I carry that with me. What I'm struggling with in this conversation is that I feel really guilty for even feeling frustrated at my father because he has sacrificed so much. I mean, he never said this, but I think he has PTSD from being a refugee boat person, from a widow at an early age. And also he lost both his parents before he was 12. Like he had a surrogate mother, his aunt. He has gone through so much. Much. And that generation 
does not have the tools to deal, nor are they open to like looking at mental health as mental health, as a form of your health. It's seen as a weakness to be sad about something. And so a part of me wants to justify and say like, he's still a great father. He still did his best. I can't be angry at him. Because in a way, I can't be angry at him, right? Like he sacrificed so much so I could even be aware that you could have a different reality, that I could go and seek therapy. So I feel a whole bunch of guilt during this conversation to even say any of this stuff. But at the same time, I can still feel hurt and I need to take care of that hurt. It's super complicated, right? And also it's like, well, silver lining, Susan, like the fact that you experienced so much resistance and pushback, it made you fight even harder for what you wanted and got you farther, quote unquote, in the art world. So isn't that good? You know, or like that helped you with grit. So I don't know. It's not cut and dry, but I do like the whole like change expectations thing. And the other part of me is like, no, that's not fair, Susan. Like we've all been in America for decades now. Like people can go get help and take care of themselves. And like when I get feedback about myself, I try to figure it out. Think about it and like make things better and improve, right? Like, can't we go find resources now? It's like this whole mixture of anger and guilt and sadness. Yeah, totally get that. But I think starting in high school, when I kind of became aware that, oh, these things that happen in my family, they're kind of impacting me in this negative way. And I think my parents have a lot to do with it. You know, I, I think I went through a long period where I didn't let myself feel angry because I would just like retell myself the stories of like the trauma in my parents' lives and just the fact that they grew up in really difficult circumstances and how I had it easier than them, right? Yes, I've had trauma in the past, some of it inflicted by them, but it's nothing compared to what they went through. And that's the truth. I don't want to deny that. But later on in my adult life, probably starting my 30s, I started letting myself be more okay with being angry to say, yes, that's true. Absolutely true. What my parents went through doesn't compare with my experience. But that doesn't mean I can't be angry. I think I've thought about it with my own kids. And just like, to me, it kind of, my mind goes to this place of like, well, what do parents owe their children? Like me as a parent, what do I owe my kids? And how much of that is mediated by circumstance? At least right now, I'm kind of at this place where I'm like, yes, I fully acknowledge that what my parents went through doesn't compare with what I went through. I mean, like, you know, their experience was so much harder, but like, do I still give myself the right to feel angry about it and to say that there were areas where they really did fall short and it hurt me and it impacted me? Like, yes, I'm still going to give myself that right. I'm sure that there are many people out there who will be angry about this and that's fine. But it was also for myself, for my mental health, because I think suppressing that anger, like it just wasn't working. I still was angry. You know what I mean? And I think suppressing it, it was impacting me in negative ways. Like it was making me depressed, just like feeling nothing. And and it was also kind of clouding my sense of, okay, well, who am I? And what do I really want to do? If I wasn't allowing myself to feel angry about things that had happened, I think it was also just kind of going along with this overall suppression of my desires and my wants. Because my desires and my wants were that I wanted like supportive, stable parents and me not allowing myself to feel angry that they weren't those things a lot of times. I was just kind of continuing this pattern of suppressing overall what I wanted out of life Mm. and out of the people around me. I'm sure this will continue to evolve as I get older, but that's kind of where I am personally. But totally, I see where you're coming from. I also can empathize with your feeling of like, I feel guilty for even saying these things, right? I think, you know, the easiest thing for people to say would be, well, either you should be really angry at your parents because X, Y, Z, right? Those are usually people who don't come from the same background. Or people could say, well, you should be really grateful because X, Y, Z. I think it's because the complexity of being able to acknowledge your own emotions, but still acknowledge your parents' humanity and what they went through is exceedingly difficult. You know, it's not really easy for human nature to hold those complexities at the same time. But I also think it is really important, like Jeanette said, to allow yourself that space to process because without going into too many details, I'm actually working through a similar situation, except it's with my mother-in-law with perinatal therapist. One thing she said to me, she was like, Kate, I have the sense that, you know, you're not allowing yourself to feel the full force of how much this relationship has really impacted you negatively because you feel guilty that you should always be nice. You know, it's like the cultural expectation that it's an elder, it's your in-law, you should feel this way, which is the problem is that you're not acknowledging the deep scarring. Like literally physically, she's like, when you talk about it, your whole body language changes. She's you're not giving yourself the ability to even one, acknowledge how deeply scarred you are and to start 
working on that so then you can be in a better place, right? And I think that's the danger is that if we resort to just platitudes about, well, it's fine, you just deal with it. And, you know, they suffered a lot. You shouldn't be mad at them. That's what you risk doing. And it's not just mental. It's also very physical, right? The body and the mind are very much intertwined. And for many of our listeners been through this is that you need to give yourself the space to acknowledge that this has really deeply impacted you without trying to play down by comparing your life to your parents' life. And I think that's the danger that we all succumb to. And it's, it's very natural to do that. But unless you acknowledge, I myself have suffered a lot and I need, I need to work on this, it's just not going to get better. It'll just really become very toxic in the long term, both for you and the person that you have that relationship with. But it's very hard. And I will admit a lot of us maybe don't have the resources to do that. But I think that is really important. I do want to make that statement. It's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> you either have to like, shut it down and feel grateful to your parents or like be super angry at them and like justify how you feel, even though those are the two easiest reactions, right? I mean, I feel the feelings all the time. And it's not even about improving your relationship with them or your visceral reactions about it. It impacts your daily life and all of your other stuff. Yeah. Like for me, what do I do? I eat to emotionally soothe myself. I eat to protect myself because I felt like I always been fighting to justify it's okay to be me, right? So I've always had some body image stuff around it. And I always feel like I'm always like so angry at my stomach. And then it doesn't help that my elders are always like, why are you so fat? You know, or you're so fat. And I'm like, should we talk about how mom died from a tummy tuck? Yes or no. Should we talk about it? Yes or no. You know, like it's pervasive. But then on an individual day-to-day level, how my relationship with food is directly connected to my relationship with my upbringing and my father. It's all interconnected. Like my daddy issues are around even when he's not around. Yeah. So we have to deal with it so that we are living a life that's like free of so much of this killjoy stuff, you know? I have another question for you guys, which is if you feel like this, the Asian, I don't know, dynamic of collective guilt or and shame play at all into this desire not to blame your parents or be angry with them. I had this revelation in the last few years where, you know, so my dad had a really terrible relationship with his father. My grandfather was extremely physically abusive to my father and my aunt and my grandmother. And he eventually had another child out of wedlock who he brought home, essentially. It was just a very fucked up situation. And I never had a close relationship with him because basically he was just a really messed up person in my view. And I'm sure he had his own life experiences that contributed to that. But my dad, he would always protect him. It was really weird. Like nobody could ever say anything bad about my grandfather, even though he was terrible to my father. And I just never really understood that. Um, And I was talking about it with my therapist and like my therapist took me back to my father as a young kid having no one, you know, except for this extremely abusive father. And I know that the people in his town kind of looked down on my dad and his family, partly because of all the dysfunction. You know, how would you react as a kid if other kids in the town are teasing you or bullying you because of that, because of your dad? You would feel a lot of shame and you would fight to defend your family, even though it's super dysfunctional because that's kind of all you have, right? And I feel like that's a super sad story, right? I mean, I just think like a kid who's in elementary school in that situation. And that's a dynamic like across cultures, right? Just kids being stuck with what they have, which is their family, even if it's really messed up. But then I feel like it's doubly so in Asian cultures because this feeling of something's wrong with your family, so therefore something's wrong with you, right? And so airing dirty laundry about your family is really shameful. Even admitting to yourself that there's something wrong with how your family interacts or something that your parents did is kind of a reflection on you. And so I wonder if that's something that you guys feel like you've seen or experienced in your own life. I mean, Susan, especially for you, right? I mean, you're telling your family story and there's obviously a lot of complex emotions that go along with that. But I feel like it could be this additional layer for Asian Americans on why it's so complicated, right, to deal with this stuff and even articulate to ourselves hard things about our families. And I also feel like it's this interesting divide, right, because for our generation, maybe we're more open to talking about it because we're in more the Western context where individuals are seen not as taking responsibility necessarily for everything that's wrong with the family. But then we also feel that tension of the Asian view versus the Western view, right, like family as collective unit versus family as a collection of individuals. 
it's so hard. I still love my family. I still want to be around them a lot. I really value them. And I have done my anger processing stuff in like emotional growth workshops or personal growth workshops, a number of them. I think what really frustrates me about all of this is like, I just want to be seen for my family. I just want them to see me as me unfiltered. And that when we all die, like I knew that they saw me for me instead of me participating in some kind of this like charade thing where we're supposed to be respectful and like honorable and all this stuff. When I was younger and Oprah would be like, follow your bliss, follow your passion, follow all this. It was simple, but it was too complicated for me, you know, because following your bliss also meant fighting up and going against the grain of everything you're talking about, Jeanette. It's a lot to deal with on your own. And so it's just easier not to deal with it because it's just like hundreds of years of tradition of how you're supposed to be. And then now you're trying to say like, well, I have desires. I have passions. You know, I want to do that. And it's like how it's so hard to walk that path. I think the challenge is that we live in a very different cultural and otherwise environment from our parents. Like I was just thinking of my closest cousin who I grew up with in China. She's still in China, never left. And, you know, her parents dynamic, like I saw her parents fighting a lot. Her dad was abusive. I mean, sorry, I wouldn't say sorry. By American standards, he would be considered abusive. Like he would, you know, physically discipline her. But that was quite normal among, I hate to say this, sorry, don't jump at us. American people. But like, I'm not justifying. I'm just saying it was just very normal. My parents hit me when I or like pinched me when I was a kid, even in the U.S. Again, not justifying that. But whereas we grew up in the U.S., so we have a totally different emotional, social, cultural environment. We have different messages coming at us. We have different resources. We are really forced to confront the conflict between how our parents were raised and their experience and how they raised us versus the reality of what it's like to be an American right in the U.S., especially we all tended to live in more progressive liberal areas, et cetera. And I look at my cousin now. She's fine. She doesn't have any issues with her parents. They're living with her right now to help her because she's expecting her first baby. There are no hangups that I know of. I mean, I've tried to talk to her about them. She knows she, she was depressed in high school. She admits that. But she never, you know, she doesn't have this lasting resentment against her parents. She's not trying to, quote unquote, work through the issues of her dad, like spanking her and yelling at her and all these like verbally violent arguments that I even witnessed as a kid. You know what I mean? In a sense, I don't want to say it's harder for us because then it just makes it sound like, oh, your life is so hard. But it is harder because we have to deal with the disparity. I'm not saying it's easy on my cousin, but she doesn't have that. Now I can't think of the English word like the cognitive dissonance. Jeanette, that's oh, the yeah, word you were looking for the other day. Yes. She doesn't have the cognitive dissonance. There's like nothing around her telling her, hey, your dad was abusive verbally and physically. And like, you know, it's very traumatizing and you had depression. You should go get help. Like she's just powering through again, not saying it's good, but she's just living her life. And for us, we have massive cognitive dissonance. Massive. And I think that's what we're all really wrestling with. It's hard. It's really effing hard. Wait, we know that healthy emotional relationships are. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what's told to us in the U.S. and like, especially, oh, you shouldn't hit your child or this is bad for them. And like, again, I think the emotional dissonance part is what makes it really hard because we are brought out of our maybe if we had stayed in, I don't know, Vietnam, China, Korea, maybe we wouldn't have as much of that dissonance because we would be really exposed to a completely different environment that tells us things, you know, different things that are right or wrong. Does that make sense? I'm not probably articulating it. No, no, no. I I understand what you're saying. And I think you're right. For me, that also brings up the question, is there kind of a more absolute view of a healthy human condition versus it's just relative to the cultural waters we're in? I mean, I tend to think that there is some, I, I think what you're saying is right. I think it makes it more salient for us. But I also think that there is like a more absolute condition for healthy human thriving. Because I look at Korea, And I do see a lot of those past abuses of power because of patriarchal structures, et cetera. Like I see those exploding now. And maybe it's because like Korea is also becoming more westernized and culture is just more globalized. So people, even if they're living in Korea, they grew up in Korea, they still are more exposed to these other norms. But not to say like Western norms are all right or the best or whatever, right? But I'm just saying that I do feel like there is some path to everyone having better relationships and having better emotional health and just just being able to thrive more that maybe we have to think about more because just how we grew up versus the environment we're working in is so different. But I think everybody had has to kind of deal with it. There is like some kind of reckoning at some level, wherever you are. But see, this all starts at home. Like this starts with you and your relationship with your parent. And I have a question for both of you. 
Do you think you could say a successful I statement with your parent? Oh my gosh, Susan, you look so uncomfortable right now, even just thinking about it. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like we can talk about how things are different back in the motherland and what we're facing here, but I'm just like in your own household, is it possible or is it like seen as like totally disrespectful to even use I statements or like, is it even going to get you anywhere? And so, you know, it's not, so you don't do it. Or you're like, that's got to start with my generation and it starts with me and I got to do it. You know, like, can you do it? I I feel like I could to a certain extent do it with my mom. Do you? Uh, Yeah, sometimes, but I mostly just get really annoyed at at her, right? So I'm just like, (laughs) but I actually have used it with her, but with regard to my dad. Isn't that interesting? So like the thing is, if I get really annoyed with my dad about something, I think he's just done something really shitty. I won't tell him to his face. Uh, I'll I don't tell think my mom. that counts as an I know, that doesn't count. Yeah. But I'm you're, being, you're being indirect, <laughs> which is so Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't tell it to his face. And then she translates my displeasure to my dad for me. So that's not I, no, no, my dad. No, no, I, I know. But like with him, I feel like I can't really do that. No, I don't think I really can because I, I think I can do it with my kids right? I can tell them when you hit me, I feel blah, blah, blah. And I can totally imagine my kids saying that to me. I hope that that will be true. Like, I don't think they're cognitively there yet, but I could imagine them saying something like that to me. And I don't feel like I would freak out. It's just that whenever I broach those things with my parents, they just spiral out of control. And so I've mentioned to both of you guys like before, but I've been reading this book with the terrible and great title of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. But the book talks about how actually with parents and people in general who have a lot of emotionally unprocessed issues that they don't really want to deal with. Sometimes like when you get emotionally really close or you have really emotional expectations of them, they tend to spin out more. It's actually when you step back And you just say like, okay, I'm going to drop these expectations that I should have of you as your child. As an adult, maybe if you're able to drop some of those, then they start feeling more comfortable and they may be actually opening up more. Again, like this has been something that's been helpful because I think I've just realized like I actually have to change my expectations about my parents. Like I do want to have these conversations with them, but I don't know if they will be able to. You know, I don't think I've fully wrapped my head around it, but I I think I'm making progress. And I actually feel like I see a difference in my interactions with my mom and my brother. I don't interact with my dad. Once I lower those expectations, I feel like they're more comfortable, you know? Yeah. I think it just requires intention, like a conscious decision to do that. I've gotten feedback from my family that I have really high expectations about how we should interact. That has hurt because I just wish we were just closer. But their definition of close and being together or what is valued and of how to hang out and be together is just different. And it's like, oh, why do I have to change expectations? Like, why can't we have the same expectation that would be so much better? But then the other part is like, what are people capable of? Okay. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of grieving, honestly. I think every child is born with this expectation and this desire for closeness with their family, especially their parents. And I think even as an adult, when you realize you can't have or like that might not be possible or that's not possible now, it may never be possible in some areas. Like there's definitely a grieving that happens. It's sad. But I feel like at least for me, that's been more of like a way that I can make progress forward in my life than being stuck in this, I expect this, you're not fulfilling it. So I feel angry and you spin out, you know, and like we just do this thing over and over again. Yeah. Pain cycle. Yeah. Yeah. What an episode. The question was, how do your parents influence your career choices? And we're just like, it's about expectations and managing them. What? What were you going to say, Janet? Well, no, this is a side note, but I was just thinking that we should do like in our work or career season, we should do one about growing up like in an Asian and Asian American context, like influences us in our mindsets in the workplace. Oh, God. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because I feel like that's also something that I've been thinking about a lot over the years. Um, In some ways, I think all of us like are kind of going around this circle, right? And maybe we'll come full circle. I feel Susan, in some ways, you now doing your show, doing your book is coming around full circle to this thing that you clearly had this streak for, right? Since you were really young. I think in some ways, I am also kind of feeling my way around the circle, right? But it takes so long. And it's such a different path than somebody who went to college and is like, yeah, I want to do comedy. I have no hangups about it. Like, 
whatever, you know, I'm just going to do it. And like, I'm not thinking twice about it. I'm not feeling like my parents disapprove. I don't have this hole in my heart of always wanting my parents approval and therefore having to make a series of compromises to try to satisfy them, but also satisfy myself. And then, you know, going through all this messy route. And so I don't know if taking that much more circuitous path what that will like ultimately mean like in some ways will that make our ultimate journey more rich because we kind of had to take this path around or will it just make us late bloomers and never catch up I don't know I have this fear but I have no idea but it's definitely just a different path and I want to believe that it somehow will enrich us I, I think especially because I think so many people are on the circuitous path and not the straightforward one I mean that's just like a greater conversation about like, what is success? What is achievement? Like, where are we going? Like, why are we going there? You know, it's like, maybe we're all just walking a path. And I think a lot of people get on the circuitous path, like even if they have a good relationship with their parents, right? I don't think that's the only factor defining your career journey. But yeah, at least for us, it seems like it's been a big one. Do you want to take it home for us, Susan? With an inside thought? Oh my God. I don't have one today. Does anyone else have one? What's your favorite food from your country of origin? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, yeah, because I spent two hours editing an entry for my book about it today. So, and it was just eating this meal. So I have to tell you what this meal is. Or just like a couple, your top three. I was thinking about it for myself. I'm like, can I even pick one? Okay. No, I can't. Here's the first that come to mind. Okay. There's this noodle soup called and so it's like a noodle soup with wide white noodles, rice noodles. And then, but it's like, it's a smorgasbord of every type of meat. So it's like shredded poached chicken with shrimp and then beef meatball and fish meatball. But then there's also like a squid and then the kidney, the pork kidney that's all crisscross and like ground pork and stuff. And so it's made in a bone broth and then there's some bean sprouts in it. And then anyways, you can eat it wet or dry, but like it's uh, native to like more Mekong Delta, Southern Vietnam kind of area. And so it's just all meat noodle soup kind of thing. That's really good. There's one called Bung Nuk Leo, which is from my province area in Sokjang. And it's um, made with fermented fish, but it's really simple. It's just like more shrimp and pork, but the broth is like really like, has a lot of umami to it. And you like ha- put a lot of lemon in it and Chinese chives in it. And it's like really funky, but it's like clean. Mm. The literal translation of Bung Nuk Leo, Nuk Leo means plain water. So it, it sounds like very like drab, but at the same time, it's like really bright and interesting. Both these dishes are, I mean, the first one you can find on some menus, but the exact way I'm telling you this and the second one is not on most Vietnamese menus. And then the third one, I'm just on a noodle soup kick today, but it's kind of like the Thai cow soy, like their chicken curry noodle soup. But this one is with vermicelli noodles and it's just like chicken. I love drumsticks and carrots and potatoes. You can have it in a thinner broth with noodles or you can have it more a little bit thicker and you dip it with like a French baguette. But I like it with the noodles. And that was like the dish I would ask for (laughs) every time it was my birthday. Because like you're not really allowed to have what you want. You know, it's always about the collective. It's all about the fucking collective. But I would get that on my birthday. This is why we have to do a food episode because your level of excitement and energy around it is like amazing. Oh my God. Fish balls don't even get me started. (laughs) Okay, you want to go next? Oh, yeah, I can think of two. And they're both dishes would be really hard to find in the U.S. So I'm from the province of Sichuan in southern China, southwest China. And one of the dishes, basically, you can't find in restaurants in the U.S. Even in China, it's very unusual. It's like a super homestyle dish. It's called mo yu shao ya. Actually, have you guys, you know how like, if you go to Japanese supermarkets, there are these like konjac. It, basically, it looks like jelly, but it's not really. Anyway, Japanese oh, is it like, too. yeah, yeah, it's like. It's like zero calories. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, shirataki like, noodle. Yeah, 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 exactly. But so that comes from like, it's like a root. And the only place in China, I feel like I've seen this is in my hometown and not even in my home province. It's like specific areas and they cut into blocks and it's stewed with like an old duck with like fermented bean paste and sometimes beer. And it's just my mom. It's very hard to find. Like I can only get it if my mom decides she wants to make it here or like I go to China, I go to some farmhouse style restaurant. I know. Um, I feel like maybe it's scarcity. It's maybe one of my, it's one of my favorite foods. That's very psychologically twisted. But anyway, it is really tasty. Uh, the other dish is a sanna fei chang flowers, sour and spicy uh, vermicelli noodles with pork intestines, which is something I ate when I was a kid. And you can still find in like roadside stalls, but I've just never been able to find that, like recapture that flavor. It's very hard to cook pork intestines so that it doesn't smell weird. 
You know, is like it, with is your, this dry or what? Um, no, no, it's like in a soup, uh, spicy and sour and then with rice vermicelli and then you add like stewed pork intestine to the top and it's just like mm. really tasty. I feel like yeah. we could just like talk about roots, yeah, roots like different types of roots. <laughs> or just at least like a whole episode. I mean, we could do an awful episode. Liver, tripe, stomach. And sorry, me. vegetarian. Yeah, sorry, vegetarian. There's not really any Korean dish that I don't like, you know, so it's it's hard for me to pick a few. But okay, some that I like, kimchi jjigae, very common, but it's so delicious. I've never sat down to kimchi jjigae and been like, I don't want to eat this. Another dish is sunde. So that's another Ooh, kind of like, I love that dish. It's a blood Korean blood sausage. We uh, had that, Susan, remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, usually I like often served with the side of boiled liver and tripe. And you dip it in salt and pepper or fermented shrimp, which to Western years will just be like weird on top of weird, right? But it's delicious. The last dish is, I'll just go for all the kind of weird foods here. Uh, it's raw crab in oh, spicy no. sauce. And it's I like, cannot do that, Jeanette. That's like a Korean thing. It's no, very maybe that's Korean. Korean. Yeah. 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 Oh, I had it once and I really wanted to like it because I hate not liking things, you know, but I yeah. couldn't. Jake likes most Korean foods, like almost everything, but he, this is like one of the foods he cannot eat, but it's just a uh, raw crab and you can either do it in a soy and garlic marinade, or you can do it in a very spicy marinade. I like both. If you like sushi, then you're closer to liking this, but it's raw crab in raw crab. It turns out is really sweet. And uh, and it's just delicious. We call it in Korean patodok. That means rice thief because you'll just end up eating so much rice and just so much of it in general. But it's a it's a kind of very seasonal delicacy you can find in the U.S. But like hard to find it made well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we could do a whole fermented series. Just like mm. I, it's lunchtime. We should eat. Okay. Bye. 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 Jeanette here again. Was there something you heard in this episode that made you think of a friend? If so, please text them this episode the next minute you have free. We would appreciate it and chances are good that your friend will too. Thanks and we're looking forward to catching you next time, whether that's on your drive back from drop-off, folding laundry, or picking up around the house at the end of the day. We see you and we're sending encouragement.